This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. People may find this a little far-fetched, but I think of Israel as potentially the last man or person standing in the West. Because if you look at the West, it is literally dying on its feet. Look at the birth rate. Basically, it is below replacement rate in central, in, in, in Western, many countries in Western Europe and in America. Whereas Israel, three point something children per woman, including in secular Tel Aviv. And, you know, this is a country, you know, in Israel, it's a, it's a country which is optimistic. It actually believes it has a future. And so its birth rate is booming. Its economy, it's booming. Its happiness index is very, very high. This is extraordinary. Melanie Phillips was once a committed diaspora Jew pledged to improving life in the UK. Moving to Israel was just simply not on her radar. Why would it be when we lived in the Golden Medina in Yiddish, a golden country where Jews could live and prosper? Today, she's an arch-Zionist, living mostly in Jerusalem with her husband, the BBC's former legal affairs correspondent, Joshua Rosenberg. This episode chronicles Melanie's transition and uses her story to illustrate what's been happening to Anglo Jewry since the end of World War II. Now, I spent most of my life thinking that it was an absolute sacred duty to be a diaspora Jew, that we had a duty to be, you know, be a life unto nations, to spread Jewish values. But I've changed my view, to put it mildly, and I now believe that in Britain, Jews are, as they always have been, there on sufferance. Melanie says she was mugged by reality in her book, Guardian Angel. Inheriting strong Jewish values, she had a monumental fallout with her Guardian colleagues, who she thought were on the same side as her, but realised in a moment they weren't. Melanie Phillips brings powerful intellect and insight to her social commentary, and this podcast is dedicated to the story of changing tides which face Jews not just here in the UK, but in the whole of the Western world. There's adventures on BBC TV political shows, and she's written a novel. Apparently, this is the first Jewish media that's got anywhere near mentioning it. Stay here for Melanie Phillips and subscribe to her work at melaniephillips.substack.com. Melanie Phillips, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Hello, Johnny. Very nice to be with you. It is very nice to have you with us today. Now, you've had a very long and distinguished writing career, and what's so interesting about it is the stream of consciousness existing throughout it, uh, through the most uh, extraordinary times of change. Uh, and, of course, we can find the latest of your columns and writings at melaniephillips.substack.com. Phillips, of course, with a double L. But you're, you're quite different now to where you were perhaps in the 1980s. No, I'm really the same cuddly person that I always was. <laughs> it's just that everybody else has changed. No, that's not quite true. Um, to stop being facetious for a moment. Um, there's part of me that changed radically and part of me that didn't change radically. Uh, what changed radically, uh, but what, what didn't change uh, is uh, the ideals that I had when I was a young uh, journalist working for The Guardian. Um, and those ideals remain my ideals. And, and they, they were basically, basically to stand up for truth against lies, for um, the disempowered against the powerful, to stand up against abuses of power and to follow the evidence wherever it led. And those ideals remain my ideals. What changed radically was that starting when I was at The Guardian, the people that I believed were on my side for truth against lies, for right against wrong, for justice against injustice, for the oppressed against the oppressor, for anti-racism, to coin the current phrase, against racism. All those people that I thought were on my side were on the other side. That was the shattering discovery that I made or the conclusion that I came to. And that changed everything for me. Um, it took a period of time because it was like finding your family as a family of serial abusers. You can't really believe it. And they're still your family. So it took me a while to disengage. And it took me longer for me to disengage from the left than it took the left to disengage from me. It took the left approximately 12 hours to disengage from me. 
Um, the first column that I wrote, the second column that I wrote at The Guardian was the first column that I wrote that almost overnight, uh, it was about education. And overnight, I became right wing. Uh, and at that stage, I couldn't understand what was going on. So I've changed considerably. But in the most important respects, I've not changed. As Brendan O'Neill told me in an earlier episode of Jolly Gould's Jewish State, uh, I haven't deserted the left. The left has deserted me. And my word, for a guy who called himself a revolutionary Marxist in the 1980s, I find it quite difficult to disagree with him on many fundamental issues. Um, there was an extraordinary where I pushed the envelope towards the end of the interview. I wanted to see what he thought about Margaret Thatcher selling off council houses in the 1980s, which I called the greatest a social act of, uh, of progress uh, in Britain in, in my lifetime. I saw it with my own eyes as a tallyman in Walsall in the West Midlands, and those houses were looked after. And of course, lo and behold, he came from a home like that in Burnt Oak. So it's an extraordinary thing to find that uh, in this sort of, uh, I don't know, paradigm of left and right, Margaret Thatcher, some of her ideals of the, the individual being empowered seem to be what he believed in as a Marxist in the 1980s. I'm really struggling with these uh, with these yes. identities now. Well, I have a lot of time for Brendan O'Neill and for other writers for the Spiked uh, website, but they are confusing um, uh, because, um, as you say, they started out as Marxists and now what they're Thatcherites. And um, this is uh, one of the curiosities. I mean, you see, I was never a Thatcherite. Um, that is to say, I'm not a Thatcherite now. Um, I believed at the time, and I still believe, that she was a very great person, that she did various things which were absolutely essential to get Britain going. And the most important thing, in my view, that she represented and embodied was the belief in Britain as a nation. She wanted to end the demoralization of the country, uh, which in the, her view had caused it to go into a period of constant decline and defeatism. Um, and I thought that was admirable at the time, and I still think that was one of her most important contributions. But she stood for a, a way of thinking, which I think is still a fault line in the Conservative Party, because it's not conservative. To me, being conservative is to conserve, to conserve what is of um, inestimable value in our society. And to that end, a lot of people who have always voted for the Labour Party, the famous Red Wall constituents in the north of England, for example, they are social conservatives. They believe in conserving the nation, its values, their way of life. Now, there's a great strain in the Conservative Party, which was embodied by Mrs. Thatcher, which is more what used to be called Manchester liberalism. It's the espousal of the free market as being the um, the unalloyed good that will change everything for the better. And it seemed to me at the time, and I wrote this at the time, when I was already persona non grata on the left, but I wrote it at the time that Mrs. Thatcher's way of, of thinking, uh, which was a kind of free market liberalism, uh, lined her up, in fact, with the left, because the banner they all marched behind was liberty. Now, liberty is very important, but as a means to an end, and it seemed to me that both the, the so-called conservatives, the free market liberal conservatives like Mrs. Thatcher and elements on the left were making freedom into an end in itself. The left, in the, on the left, it took the form of social, social policy. So, you know, lifestyle choice, everyone's sexual arrangement uh, was the same value as everyone else's, that sort of thing. Uh, like I'm libertarian and on the right, uh, in the so-called Conservative Party, it took the form of economic liberalism. I got the impression, and I wrote this at the time, and I've never changed my view, that Mrs. Thatcher seemed to think that if the entire world was run like Marx and Spencer, everything would be great. And what she didn't understand, and I think she began to understand it towards the end of her premiership, was the cultural revolution that was underway at the time in the institutions of the country, particularly the universities and the schools. Um, she got to the schools bit quite late on, but even then she didn't really understand, in my view, what was, you know, the magnitude of what was going on. The whole onslaught on the family, the traditional family, the onslaught on the very concept of the nation. 
you know, she didn't understand that because she was marching behind this banner of liberty. And I think we still see that fault line today. And I was never of that ilk. And I still am not. I'm somebody who believes in social responsibility. I believe, you know, in helping to make a better society by empowering the good that people do rather than the bad. And the good that people do means looking after each other, putting others, other people's interests first, putting your children's interests before your own. You cannot have a society run on the basis of selfishness, which remains uh, a cohesive society committed to anything rem resembling decent values. Now, I've always thought that, and I still think that. And that puts me at odds with a very significant portion of the Conservative Party. So I find myself in the extraordinary position, and we can talk about some of the issues that relate to this, but I find myself in the extraordinary position now of being simultaneously under attack from the left as being a far-right neo-fascist, and from the right as going back to my Guardian Easter roots mm -hmm. simultaneously. Uh, this is a very perplexing position to be in. Well, we'll talk about that within the Jewish paradigm because I'm, I'm sort of fitting the horseshoe there uh, that you're uh, you're talking about. But I did eventually, just, just pegging back, I did uh, get Brendan eventually to bulk during our interview when uh, I presented him with the idea of being a Thatcherite. He was at that point that I finally got him to, boom, uh, that no, and he, he described it in exactly the same way that you did, that the economic and social uh, differences. So, um, you know, maybe we'll see you in Spiked very, very soon. <laughs> Who knows? Um, should we just go back into your Jewish background, which, a bit like mine, is of a time that has gone. It's yep. flown. And I mourn it in the sense that it was so rich and so lovely. Uh, grandparents from, well, all four corners of Europe, in my case, from they fled Vienna. Uh, my grandfather fled the First World War in what is now the Ukraine, was Poland and Russia as a child. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Birmingham. Uh, I am, to all intents and purposes, a fourth generation Brume. Uh, whereas on the mother's side, I am, uh, you know, a second generation Englishman uh, because they came from Vienna. So, um, and, you know, I know all about that stupid prejudice within the Jewish community uh, amongst people because um, my, my mum even talked about it, about the new immigrants who came. And you hear about the Spanish and the Portuguese in 1492 and 1497, and it's the same old, same old. So just tell us a little bit about your background, because I think you're from Hammersmith originally, right? Yes, yes. Um, uh, I was born and bred in Hammersmith in West London um, and uh, lived most of my life uh, until uh, about 20 years ago in West London. Um, my parents uh, both were born in Britain. Uh, my mother's grandparents immigrated to Britain from Belarus, as it's now called, and my father's parents immigrated from Poland. So he was one generation back. And I had a very typical of its time upbringing uh, in Hammersmith. They settled in Hammersmith uh, uh, for various reasons. And we belonged to a United Synagogue Orthodox synagogue uh, in Hammersmith. And at the time, West London had quite a large Jewish community. And over time, over quite a, you know, over the, the I suppose, 20 or 30 years after I was born, I was born in 1951, um, the Jewish community basically left West London and migrated to Northwest London. But my parents uh, stayed behind in Hammersmith until they died. Um, and they never had any money at all, except that, um, oh, well, they, they, they had some money, um, all of which they spent on my education. I was privately educated. I was an only child, uh, but they had no savings ever and died virtually penniless. Uh, and they lived in they lived in the same rented apartment that they'd always lived in. My father sold uh, women's clothes from a van. Um, my mother ran a shop selling children's clothes. Um, they were very uneducated, but they were intelligent, but they were uneducated. My father had left school at, I don't know, 14 in the East End, he'd had, you know, a classic East End upbringing, you know, six of them in one room, uh, no food, no work. Um, and um, 
we were not Sabbath observant. We were not Shomer Shabbat, uh, but we were um, kosher at home and out. Um, and it was a, it was in that sense a very typical uh, British Jewish upbringing. And Israel just didn't figure. Um, Israel was a country which we all kind of supported and we were pleased that it was there, but it was for Jews not like us. Why? It was for Jews who needed it. Why didn't we need it? Because we were in the Golden Medina. We were in one of the best environments for Jews ever. Britain was so good to us, we thought. We were so grateful to it, we told ourselves, for having taken us collectively in and for treating us so well because the British, unlike the more excitable continentals uh, in mainland Europe, um, were absolutely stoical and phlegmatic. They were, as as people, the British were as grey and damp as the weather. And that was our security. That was our safety. And so why on earth would we even think of going anywhere else? Um, and uh, so Israel never figured in my mind. It wasn't a Zionist family. Um, when I uh, was a teenager, uh, I uh, attended uh, a Zionist youth organization, but it was more kind of for, for social reasons than ideological reasons. And indeed, the kind of Zionist propaganda we were subjected to uh, turned me off completely because I was very contra-suggestive and I thought, well, I'm not going to be told to how to think. And so it never figured in my mind until... 1982, uh, which we can talk about if you want. Yes. Is that the Lebanon War or an yes. incident in your life? It's a, the, the, it was an incident in my life. It was against the background of the Lebanon War. And Shlomo uh, Argov's uh, attempted assassination, presumably. Yes, yes. Um, when I was at The Guardian, I'd, I think I joined The Guardian in, I think it was 79. Mm. Uh, so I hadn't been there for very long, uh, but I was already a Guardian leader writer. Uh, which was a wonderful job because it was um, it was like going back to my Oxford educational days. It was like being in an Oxford college. The colleagues in the leader room were so civilized. They were so educated. They were so wonderful in every respect. And I just I just was absolutely in heaven until I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was that the Lebanon war happened and as I said, I, Israel wasn't really on my radar, but I was very aware immediately in 1982 when the Lebanon War happened that something terrible had crawled out of the woodwork in Britain about Jews because the Lebanon War at that stage, that, that particular war was controversial. I wasn't sure what I thought about it. I thought Israel had behaved rashly in going too far into Lebanon and whatever. But I understood that the reason they'd gone in was defensive. Every Israel war is defensive. And they'd gone in to root out the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was a source of terrorism in Israel. But out of the woodwork came the motif of the Israeli Jew as the Nazi. Ariel Sharon was the Nazi. And Israel's defensive war was portrayed as an act of wanton aggression. And they were kind of portrayed as bloodthirsty killers of the innocent. And I, this knocked me for six. And... Simultaneously, this was accompanied by unashamed anti-Semitism. Anyone who was Jewish was accused of, you know, but you all stick together, as if we're all kind of suddenly lumped together because of this war that had nothing to do with us because we were British Jews. And the thing that happened at The Guardian, which changed my life, uh, or started the change in my life, uh, was when one day I said to them, I was perplexed why the Guardian was dwelling so much on the Lebanon war, why any kind of killing of the Palestinians was the subject of a front page splash story, um, outraged editorials, apoplectic op-eds, whereas Assad the father, the father of the current President Assad of Syria, caused the death over a short period of time, a couple of weeks maybe, of anything between 10 and 40,000 of his opponents. And it was a routine foreign story in the back of the paper. And I said, we appear to have a double standard. Why, why is that? And it was as if I had crossed a line. Mm. I knew 
immediately I'd crossed a line. The entire leader room looked at me in amazement and said, of course, there's a double standard. How can there not be a double standard? We in the West are brought up to have respect for human life and human rights. People in Syria are not brought up to have that kind of attitude. We can't judge people in Syria or anywhere in the developing world by our standards. That's racism. And I said, are you kidding me? You mean if you're unfortunate enough to be born into a society which doesn't care about human life, but which is killing you, then your life isn't worth what our lives are worth? To me, that's racism. And then they said, why are you so upset? We do you. And I became you at that point. Mm. I'd previously been we. I now became you. We do you the great honor of believing that you and we are all on the same moral page. And what's more, you tell us that you are morally superior to us. And at that moment, I realized that the people I thought were on my side were not on my side, that they purported to be anti-racist, but they were deeply anti-Jewish and prejudiced. And not just prejudiced against Jews, but prejudiced against the developing world. They viewed people from the developing world as less deserving of human rights than they were. And from that moment, I realized that they were on the other side to me. And that kind of opened a door through which I walked and started to look at stuff in Britain that was going on in Britain to do with education, family, and all those issues, the nation, multiculturalism, all those things. I started to judge by completely different yardsticks and realized as I went on that what I had gleaned in those in those encounters in 1982 uh, was a kind of foretaste of the fact that they were really on the other side. And another thing that happened in 1982 was that they made it clear to me that because I was taking this view, and I'd never been to Israel at that point, never wanted to go, but because I was taking the view that there was a fundamental unfairness, imbalance, disproportionate nature of this reporting, I was no longer British. They regarded me as no longer British. And this was made clear to my face. And so that set in train this whole, you know, change of attitude that I had. Um, And then that whole Israel thing went underground in my mind. I was busy with many other things. And it surfaced again in 2000 with the Intifada. Mm. Did they physically actually say you don't reflect British values or you're just not British in the way that we understand it? There was one particular thing that happened at that time. Uh, my uh, One of the, the, the chief leader writer at The Guardian made a remark to me, which was intensely revealing in this respect. There was a short period in that year in which Israel was still at war in the Lebanon Britain had gone to war in the Falklands against the Argentine invasion. And at The Guardian, we were absolutely consumed by the Argentine uh, adventure. Uh, It was a matter of the most intense controversy, whether Mrs. Thatcher was trying to sort of emulate, you know, Gladstone's gunboats or whatever, no, Palmerston's gunboats, whatever it was, um, and, you know, was trying to sort of relive the British Empire, or whether she was acting properly to defend British individuals in the Falklands. And it consumed us, this this great controversy that was going on within The Guardian. It's what we all thought about the whole time. And one day I met the, but the, the Lebanon War was still going on. And in this period of crossover, I encountered the chief leader writer who said to me as follows, Melanie, what on earth are we going to say about your war? And he did not mean the Falklands, Mm. my war, all because I had simply questioned the disproportionate and venomous coverage of Israel in the Lebanon. But I was the Falklands was no longer my war. I was no longer British. And that attitude, it wasn't said to me in such graphic terms, but it was made quite clear. And in fact, I went to a debate. I think this was in after 2000. Uh, It was a debate run, as I recall, by The Economist. And 
in the course of that debate, it was about the Middle East, in the course of that debate, somebody got up, uh, the proposer of the motion or the whatever it was, you know, the main speaker, and said the British Jewish community has got a problem because unless they disavow Israel, we should no longer consider them to be British. And everybody just nodded. Everybody nodded along. And, you know, there have been crude things like that, but which which are unambiguous. But I, after my encounters at the Guardian in, 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 in the early 1980s, I came across this attitude a lot, but expressed more obliquely, but making it quite clear that there was something very un-British about supporting Israel. You couldn't support Israel as a Jew and be British. And of course, this is, you know, a unique position for British for, for the Jewish community. No other community is presented with this ultimatum that, you know, your view of it of, of another country influences whether or not you're actually British, considered to be British. And it's this, you know, this this imputation of disloyalty and treachery. And in 2000, it became so, or from 2000, it became so overt that I, at that point, I decided um, that we'd all been living in Britain as British Jews in a fool's paradise. There had been a kind of 50-year moratorium on the normal course of, 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 of events, which was basically to disdain uh, Jews or even hate them. And because of the discovery of the of, the, of Auschwitz and the, and the extermination program, the genocide, it had all gone underground. And now Israel was providing uh, people with an excuse once again to be anti-Jewish. And this was actually said to me by somebody who I'd previously held in high esteem, somebody with liberal credentials, but who had always struck me as very open-minded, somebody in journalism. And he said, you've got this whole anti-Semitism thing completely wrong. And I said, why have I got it wrong? And he said, well, what you have to understand is that after the war, none of us could say anything about Jews. And now we can again. <laughs> and I said, what, you're telling me that because now it's open season on Jews, um, this is a good thing? And he said, I didn't put it like that. And I said, but that's exactly what you just said to me. You know, the 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 social disapproval of anti-Semitism has now been lifted by Israel providing you with the excuse to be horrible about Jews again, but you can sort of launder it through Israel. That's exactly what's happened. Um, so you know, this has been a long, slow, and painful process for me. Very painful indeed, because I'm British. I mean. Britain is what made me. It's part of my character, you know, damp and wet. It's 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 part of me. I'm I'm not, you know, and consequently, it's it's immensely painful. It's as I said before, it's like a family. You know, you suddenly realise that they've been abusing you. Sure. And thank you for talking in such emotional terms. Which um, in, I got you onto the subject because I heard a very similar discourse in Giles Fraser's podcast, Confessions, about your departure from the left of journalism via the New Statesman, the Guardian. Do you still have friends over there, or have you divorced a lot of them? If they divorced me. They, yeah. So, but you've got no pals from that that place anymore. No, not from no. not from the left. Um, no. What do you say about uh, the Jewish people, very high profile Jewish people who are still in there? You know, they have to suck all of that up. I mean, they do. You know, there's no way of else of putting it. They have to live that life uh, in a kind of jimitude, in a way. Well, indeed, um, everybody reacts to this in their own way. Um, and uh, it is very striking that so many still are in what I would call a state of denial. Um, but they are very often people who live fairly insulated lives. Um, and they don't come across what I came across so much in personal terms, because they're not mixing in those sorts of circles. And the second point is that they are people very often for whom Israel is, as it was for me all those years ago, not part of their lives. They're quite, and these people are quite irritated by it because it keeps being thrust at them. Mm. But it, it doesn't really concern them. And if they think about it, they kind of they kind of agree that Israel really, you know, does stuff that is 
is really bad. They've bought the lies. They're very often people who know zero about Jewish history, zero about the history of the Middle East, zero about the current situation in, in, in Israel in terms of the politics of the region. And all they know is given to them by the BBC and the mainstream media. And they are ignorant and prejudiced. They bought a lot of the prejudices. So when they tune in to the Today programme, they don't react in the way that I react, with horror and revulsion and outrage at the lies that are being put over as truths about Israel. They just suck it in and they think it's true. Um, and so that's a significant proportion. And then there's a proportion who do get it, but who are, you know, moving is just not an option. i fully understand that, fully understand that. Moving is a luxury for many people. Um, you know, for, 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 for many people, they are, they, are, they are so entrenched through their work, through their family ties. You know, it's unthinkable. In other words, the level of pain would have to be, and let's hope this never happens, but the level of pain would have to be, in order for them to consider moving, uh, to consider their position was so bad they had to move, the level of pain would have to be inordinately higher. And let's hope that never happens. So I don't judge them. I mean, I, I you know, it, it's, it's a matter of some regret that so many don't see it. And it's a matter of even more regret that the British Jewish community has always been, in terms of its leadership, very timid. As we know, they've always kept, you know, heads below the parapet. And there are so many things they could and should say that would start to educate the rest of the country about the lies that are passing for truths. But they never say it. They never say them, partly because they actually believe the lies themselves and they think that the truth is too extreme. Or they do understand, but they take the view, which is very understandable, that it's not worth their while because of the punishment that will be inflicted upon them socially and professionally to tell these truths. And I fully understand that, and that is true. So they're silent. And this is a very tragic situation uh, because anyone like people like me who come along and say stuff about the Palestinians' attitude, their anti-Semitism, um, uh, uh, for example, about the fact that um, uh, Israel always behaves legally, regardless of what anyone else might say. I'm regarded as extreme. Mm -hmm. The bigger the truth you say in these circumstances, the more extreme you are painted. So Indeed. this is a matter of some regret. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years. The known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really really scares because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to be truth tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either Patreon.com/slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. Ko-fi.com/slash Johnny Gould.
Indeed, I have been punished uh, bitterly this year for uh, my stance on really being Jewish, actually. It was about the knee. I took a very similar position to you uh, on, on that. I don't really want to talk about it too much because the podcast is about my guests, not me. But if you read the Jewish Chronicle, I've appeared on the front page a couple of times about Villa. And uh, a bit like you, I was kicked out of uh, a community, my city, where I thought I belonged. Um, there are 189 fascists um, in the Holt End at Villa Park. That is the amount of people I've had to block. I never locked anyone in my long and distinguished Twitter history uh, before that. Uh, but they're in the club. They're in the first team. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's painful. However, uh, I still go on about uh, love for Villa and love for football because when it's played without politics, it is a very beautiful thing. Until a, until a final, until we take penalties. And then it becomes a, a point of agony again. <laughs> How important, Melanie, is Israel to Jewish discourse and identity in the 21st century? Is the future cradle of Jewishness? What role does the diaspora have in our future? I'm going to use uh, evidence A, which is the um, general and quite considerable decline in the Ashkenazi pronunciation of all prayers uh, in uh, at shul. You know, I, I was brought up with Ashkenazi pronunciations. It is uh, it, it's dying out, and of course, the whole culture is an Ivrit culture. Gegers into height. We won't be hearing that for very much longer either. Uh, but but you know that that is that is sort of figure one evidence that really the future cradle of Jewishness is in the consensus of the nine million people, eight million of which are Jews who live in Israel. Yeah, well, look, I spend most of my time now in uh, in Israel, um, which is in itself an extraordinary situation for me, um, partly for that reason, um, uh, because I think this is where we need to be to be properly Jewish. Now, I spent most of my life thinking that it was an absolute sacred duty to be a diaspora Jew, mm-hmm. that we had a duty to be, you know, be a light unto nations, to spread spread Jewish values. Um, but I've changed my view, to put it mildly. Um, and I now believe that um, in Britain, Jews are, as they always have been, there on sufferance. However, they parse it in their minds that they are equal citizens they will never be. And I've come to realize that this is the Jewish condition, that the Jewish condition, if you, if you, if you, if you, if, if you read the Torah um, uh, and you think about it, you, 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 you read there. We are destined to be always on the other side. We are Ivrim. This is what it means to be on the other side. And we are a nation deliberately set apart. We are not to be counted. It's written in the great book. We are not to be counted as other nations. Now, this, of course, sends most British Jews and diaspora Jews absolutely wild uh, because it's against everything they believe in. It's against everything I used to believe in. But I do believe that it's part of Jewishness to be separate. And the the idea that, you know, we can ever be safe and secure in the diaspora is an absolute illusion. That's not to say everybody should basically pack up and come to Israel. It's not possible for vast numbers of people. But if you're asking what the centri- whether Israel is, is, is central, uh, yes, it is absolutely central. Um, this is where, you know, Jews are Jews regardless of what people think of them. Um, and it's, it is a country set apart. There's no question about it. Um, it, is a, it is unique. And many Israelis can't bear this thought. Many Israelis, particularly, you know, secular Israelis living in Tel Aviv, if they're young, I stereotype, but nevertheless, you get the point. Their whole thing is to be like everybody else in the world. They can't bear the fact, you know, why should we be singled out? Indeed, if you come at it from a secular position, why on earth should they be singled out? Why should Jews be singled out? But we are because we single ourselves out. Um, and, you know, so... So in Britain, you have a situation where, you know, assimilation and uh, the loss of the Jewish community is accelerating. Yes. Uh, In America, it's much, much worse. In America, you know, 70 percent are liberal in their politics and liberal in, broadly speaking, the same people are liberal in their religious observance. 
and within a few generations they are not there's not there's only going to be a small very orthodox community the jewish community as we know it in america is simply dying uh, and 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 in britain it's going the same way but in a gentler trajectory yeah. um so there's no future there's simply no future uh, even in the most benign circumstances there's no future whereas i think of israel as not just the center of jewish life in the world but i think of israel and you may you know people may find this a little far fetched um but i think of israel as potentially the last man or person standing in the west because if you look at the west it is literally dying on its feet look at the birth rate i can't give you the figures but basically it is below replacement rate in britain it is worried for example in in central in 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 western many countries in western europe and in america it's either just about at replacement or just below or below replacement rate um uh similarly the muslim world going off the cliff that way um whereas israel uh 3. Point something children per woman um including in secular tel aviv uh and you know this is a country you know in israel it's a it's a country which is optimistic it actually believes it has a future yes. and so its birth rate is booming its economy it's booming its happiness index is very very high this is extraordinary every family here in israel if they have a especially if they have a boy child as soon as that boy is born they know 17 years and then we have to surrender him to the army and we may lose him everybody lives with this everybody and a lot of people live with the bereavement of children who have died in the service of Israel and this goes on without remission yes and yet it's one of the happiest countries in the world yes. because there's a sense of purpose a sense of self belief a sense of collective endeavor and it's extraordinary to come back to britain leave aside the corona crisis but to come back to britain where everybody lives in peace and plenty where there are you know 10 varieties of yogurt uh in the shops uh where you have so much consumer choice it's coming out of your ears where people are wealthy where their children are not threatened uh by military service and dying in the cause of their country and they have everything and they're so miserable mm-hmm. and they're so cynical <laughs> and they see the bad in everything yes and it's the most extraordinary contrast and so i think something fundamentally is out of kilter not just with the diaspora world but with the rest of the world um and israel is bucking the trend indeed i saw a wonderful picture of the khupa the wedding of gilad shalit and thought oh, yes. uh, well there was a man worth saving despite the huge huge cost to the stability of the country because as you say he might produce a few men or indeed women children um of the future and maybe one of them will cure cancer or become the prime minister or just something brilliant because that's what happens in the Israeli Jewish world and then I then I then I dropped a note to Arnold Roth because of course he was on the other side of that and I said I'm sure you'll be full of joy at the the wedding of uh, of Gilad but I'm just thinking of you today because of course yep. it was uh, Malki that was one of the yep. um yep. one of the victims of yep. the of the prisoner release etc Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Israel is, you know, is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for a Jew to live yeah. in, <laughs> in yeah. that respect. Yeah, yeah. So in Britain, you know, as you have highlighted, we've experienced seismic changes in the Jewish demography at uh, the millennium, though there was a little bit of an uptick, um, and the noughties as well, as French Jews in particular arrived in th- in their thousands. many are leaving now as the french speaking nations attempt a brexit land grab uh, watch out for the stories about paris uh, making a really determined effort i know those plans have been in place for about 2 or 3 years and lo and behold new office buildings are being built for a new class of former london employees going back to paris going to mainland europe to operate in new de facto capitals where the access to the european union will be attempted geneva as well our primary school is emptying out of uh, you know a fair number of french jewish people but 
What is the future of Jews in Europe, Melanie? You're going to say the same thing, I think. Well, it's a very serious outlook. I wasn't quite sure whether you were referring to French Jews going from London back to Paris. They're doing it for expediency, uh, for commercial reasons. The banks recognise that they need hubs in mainland Europe. And there is a land grab and it's been negotiated. And even people who have British passports who are of French uh, Jewish origin have been negotiating at the very, very highest level, very highest level to bring Jewish homesick um, uh, Jewish families uh, who, who have lived well in London, who are doing great things. Uh, but uh, globalization in the way that it was understood that they were brought here is over. I know we're having a global Britain, but that's going to look quite different uh, to the globalized uh, Tony Blair <laughs> ideal, which is now very firmly uh, gone. Uh, and these people are going home, for want of a better word. Um, and we ain't going to replace them here, but they're going to have to live in uh, in Paris and in Geneva, which is obviously Switzerland and France, very, very different kinds of European nation. Um, but they are they are going home in their in their hundreds. Well, good luck to them. I mean, I wouldn't like to be a Jew in France uh, yeah. or in many other countries in Europe. Um, and this is going to get much worse, um, uh, mainly through, you know, uh, uh, anti-Jewish uh, the, 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 the anti-Semitism in the, in the Muslim community um, in uh, various countries, which we've seen, especially in France, but also other countries, um, Sweden, um, the Netherlands, um, it's not going to go away. It's going to get worse uh, because it's being appeased. And people like me who speak about it are considered by the Jewish community leadership to be Islamophobic. So while you have you know, Jewish community leaders calling people who are drawing attention to the extreme danger to Jews from this tendency, Islamophobic and prejudiced, and trying to shut them shut them up and shut them down, um, the parlous position of these Jewish communities is going to get very, very much worse. So I think there is no future. I mean, having said that, you know, Jews in the diaspora uh, have always um, uh, there, but they've always been Jewish communities in the diaspora who have lived and indeed thrived in appalling circumstances. Yes. Um, in, in Eastern Europe, you know, some of the finest um, uh, uh, Talmudic scholarship came out of the most in the most appalling um, circumstances of oppression. So, um, you know, Jews cling on and survive regardless. Um, so I wouldn't gainsay that. Um, is going to. I wouldn't say that's not. That won't happen again. Um, but it, uh, you know, everybody decides for themselves the level of discomfort or or um, danger uh, or pain uh, that they can tolerate. Everybody makes that uh, that calculation for themselves. Um, but looking at it kind of dispassionately, I would say you know it's a very fraught future for the Jews of the diaspora in Europe. Now. Um Many of us have enjoyed your uh, occasional appearances on BBC One's politics shows. <laughs> I'm sorry, forgive me for laughing, but you'll understand as, as uh, someone who sympathises with Griddle what you say. It's good, it's good to get your opinion in uh, on that channel. Um, why do they pick you? Do they pick you to make an example of you? Or because, no, we really should be hearing a wide spectrum of voices. We are, yeah. you know, why, why do they pick you? Well... As I've often said to the BBC, I am invaluable to them Correct. as the acceptable face and voice of what they consider to be lunacy. Right. Um, they've got to have it represented. Um, yes. And because they, they know there's a constituency that, you know, that has to be represented. They have to be seen to be fair. Um, and also, you know, I'm good box office. I you know, bring in the ratings. Um, uh, and I can only assume that that's why they do it. But they keep they, they when i started speaking about israel and anti-semitism in the year 2000 i'd never spoken about it really before um to begin with they kept putting me on on the basis that i had to be heard and i was always matched against an arab or a muslim or an israel basher mm. previously i'd be matched against a left winger suddenly i became the jew and i became matched against one of those people and then they stopped inviting me on. 
And they went to some, they've gone to some lengths to avoid giving me any kind of platform where I might speak about these terrible forbidden subjects. And so when I'm offered the opportunity, which happens sometimes by accident, I take it. Yeah. And the reaction is like, oh, whoa, we've got to stop her. Um, <laughs> and it's really quite amusing if you can stand back and see it as such. For me, it is agonizing yes. because I'm up against such a prejudice yes. that you can't penetrate it. So the so I uh, the, the way I deal with it, what I real I've re come to realize over the over many years of painful experiences of this kind, is that you know classically I'm in a studio or currently on Zoom, up against a BBC presenter and one or two guests or more who are virulently anti-Israel, anti-Jew, whatever it is. But what I have come to realize is that the people that I'm actually trying to reach are not the presenter and the guests. I'm not trying to convince them. Yes. I'm reaching the people down the tube watching the telly because they write to me in great number and say, thank goodness you were there. And yeah. that's the point. You know, on the sofa, people are watching carefully and listening yes. carefully. And among other things, they're saying, I never heard that before. Is that true? Can you give me references? And you suddenly realize you know, they really don't know. Britain is full of really, really decent people committed to fairness, justice, the rule of law, being nice to others. And they've been hooked onto a narrative which turns it on its head. And they kind of know it's wrong, but they don't know why it's wrong because no yeah. one's telling them. And suddenly somebody comes along and gives them a few nuggets of information. And they suddenly realize, my goodness, we never knew that. Is there more? And it's tragic when I find this. It's absolutely tragic because you realize then what we're all up against. So why the why these telly people keep doing this? I mean, you have to ask them. Uh, but basically, it's because it's because, you know, I represent a constituency that they have to accommodate in some, in some way. Well, well done, I guess. For, well done for being that person. And uh, Joseph Cohen says the same thing. Um, Israel Advocacy Movement, that fantastic um, broadcaster on YouTube. He doesn't do it um, to uh, confront the people. He's never going to win against some really terrible people that he comes up against. He does it down the tube for the benefit of yeah. the decency of uh, the people watching. Uh, he gets coverage in the Sun newspaper in terms of the constituency that, that you're looking at, the right. decency in Britain, etc. Now, right. Melanie, I was in synagogue uh, the other weekend and the rabbi at my synagogue talked about zeal, uh, which I think is uh, a great discussion because the guy, it's Shlomo Levine, absolutely brilliant man. Uh, very lucky to have him as, as the rabbi at our shul. Uh, he says zeal gets a bad rap these days. He explained that zeal, that the zeal that we're exposed to predominantly, particularly in the West, has a message of hate and division attached to it. Yet there is a zeal which could include compassion and love. Yeah. Um, and he then expands on it. We're all concerned with being middle of the road and, you know, kind of this and that and not tackling the things that need to be said or, or dealt with. Would the world be better off, Melanie, with zealousness which promoted love, not division? Well, uh, I'm torn uh, because I'm British and I don't like zealotry. Um, I suspect passion, uh, but I am passionate in pursuit of my anti-zealotry, if you see what I mean. Um, <laughs> So, you know, unpick that one. Um, well, Winston Churchill, he gave us an example as a, a zealous man in the way that he yeah. was uncompromising about the Nazis, the Nazis. Yeah. Um, and we needed his zeal amongst, yeah. the, amongst the surrender monkeys around him. I mean, I get very emotional about stuff that I care about very much um, because I care about the consequences of, the other, of what's going on on the other side of the argument. But I do... So I do. Um, I am suspicious of emotion, 
I believe that we should always try to be rational and follow the evidence and keep emotion in check. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be committed and outspoken um, uh, and uh, dogged. Um, now, whether that's, I, I wouldn't call that zeal. Um, I mean, I know exactly what Shlomo Levine means. And yes, one should be passionate in respect of promoting truth over lies and justice over injustice and so on. But that's that's fine in theory. But in terms of a person, um, I think if a person allows emotion to dominate reason, then I think you're asking for trouble, even if the cause is a just one. Thank you. Um, you know, the most amazing thing about this podcast is uh, the lessons that I get taught by each and every guest and the fact that I can have a conversation lasting nearly an hour like the old days in front of a fire. Uh, and I'm extremely grateful for this, Melanie. Thank you indeed for your time. And I have one more question for you, an, uh, an unscheduled one. It's uh, something I looked up this morning. It's a new novel out. It's called The Legacy. <laughs> Um, the mystery behind a recently discovered medieval manuscript holding the secret to the survival of the Jewish people. His name's Russell Wolf. Is that a family name? Is there an uncle <laughs> Russell in the family? He's a faded TV producer. He's struggling with his father's death, deeply uncomfortable with his own Jewish identity. He's torn between anger with his father, estranged over Russell's marriage to a non-Jewish woman, and grief over their failure to reconcile. So it's not exactly... Uh, autobiographical but it must be must be someone around your uh, your world tell us about the book what, no well it's 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 no one around my world um and it's everyone around my world yeah I mean, it's you know, it's a, it's a it's a novel that i wrote um in which i drew upon a whole variety of people and and types that i'd met um and uh i wanted to get under the skin of anti-semitism and I wanted to do it in a way that um, knitted various things together that were important to me. Um, and I'd never written a novel before. Um, and amazingly, um, it sort of it sort of took over my brain. The characters sort of took up residence in my brain. And I now find it quite difficult to sort of sort out the fictional characters from the people I actually meet, um, because I can <laughs> so I have drawn upon various people that you know I I I I know. Um, and um, I never thought I could write a novel, and I did, and it was eventually uh, published. And, you know, uh, first of all, I've been very gratified by the readers who have read it and who've written to me and have said the thing that matters most to me of all, which is I couldn't stop turning the pages. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, what greater compliment can there be? But, you know, that novel has had not one review. Right. Um, including in the Jewish press, which won't look at it, won't, won't touch it. Right. Um, now, you have to ask yourself, why not? And everyone can fill in their own their own reason. Um, but anyway, um, I was glad to have, very glad to have written it. Uh, and, you know, it enabled me to explore in some depth a lot of things that have been on my mind, but to do it creatively through characters that actually lived. And one of the things I wanted to do, which was rather ambitious, was to get inside the mind of an anti-Semite. And I, that's what I tried to do. Um, and the, the central character, who is not the anti-Semite in question, uh, the central character, this man, Russell Wolfe, um, uh, draws upon um, a, a type uh, in the British Jewish community, a type that I met many, have met many, many times, um, who is uncomfortable in his own skin as a British Jew because there are there are tensions within being a, Brit a Briton and a Jew which he doesn't want to recognise and understand and he has no idea that even though these tensions existed until he comes up against it and then he can't deal with it and then it changes him. I didn't, it doesn't change my character in the way that it changed me but it changes him. And um, that's what I wanted to explore, this, this process of painful change and to see where such a character ends up. And he, this character is not me and he doesn't end up in the place that I've ended up. And consequently, I've been um, assailed by various uh, people, uh, mainly sort of um, rabbis, who have said, oh, 
why did he do X? He should have done Y. And I said, and I said, but, you know, that's the character. And they said, but you wouldn't have done Y. <laughs> and I said, but the character isn't me. It's a character. I mean, you know, it's, he has a separate life from me. No, yeah. no, he should have done Y. <laughs> well, it's great that they're talking it through. And uh, if you want a review from uh, the Jewish media, a must read. Johnny Gould's Jewish State. You know, a real page turner. Actually, I must read Very it. Uh, I must read it, which I haven't done. Melanie Phillips, thank you so much for your valuable time and joining us here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's been a real pleasure, Johnny. I've really enjoyed the conversation and um, good luck. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show.